Greetings and welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I am your host, Andreas Kasai, and you are listening to Season 2 of the SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association's podcast, where we spotlight MFP fellows and alumni and their pioneering work to improve health outcomes for marginalized communities. We have so much to explore, so let's get started. Greetings, Dr. Matovu, and welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers. Let me begin by asking you to please introduce yourself to our audience. My name is Dr. Skola Matovu. I am an alum of uh, the University of California, San Francisco, and currently an assistant professor at the University of Utah College of Nursing. Thank you for having me, Andreas. You are most welcome. And you are joining us today from Uganda in East Africa. Can I ask what you're doing there? That's right. I'm currently on a 12-month Global Health Fellowship that is supported by the University of California Global Health Institute and funded by the National Institute of Mental Health and Fogarty International Center. And so I'm uh, working on a pilot right now that is utilizing uh, qualitative research and community-engaged approach in informing a development of an intervention that supports grandmother caregivers. All right, grandmother, caregivers, I look forward to digging further into that with you. But before that, I am curious to learn more about your background. If you could share with us more about your story, your childhood, and what it was like growing up where you did. (laughs) Well, I thought you might never ask. Uh, No, thank you. Uh, (laughs) I I do say thank you because often uh, I think that question allows me to uh, reflect on my background and my upbringing and Really, that reminds me of who I am, and it informs the work I do and the lens through which I see the world and how I interact with uh, the world. I was born in a small uh, village in Entebbe, Uganda, in East Africa, where I was raised by my grandmother, or Jaja, uh, that's the Luganda term for grandma, and Matilda Naboa was her name. She has since passed on. But she raised me in this very humble and very small dirt-walled, tin-roofed house, uh, the size maybe of a you know, 20 by 20 storage space, so not too big, where she raised me and took care of me and other relatives and babysat neighborhood children. And she was revered in the community I grew up in um, because she provided herbal remedies to so many who uh, did not afford to access hospitals for health care. And so um, as a little girl, I remember she would send me for the herbs that she used or once in a while I would see pregnant women come to our home and she would fill their bellies and once in a while she would walk one to a nearby shrub and the next thing I hear is a crying baby or eight in the in the evening she would attend to an emergency of a stilapia bone that stuck in um, a young boy's throat and so there was something special that I watched about her And I wanted to emulate, even though she did not receive any formal education and could not read or write, but I knew there was something special. And uh, I believe that's why I'm a nurse today, because of her. She sounds like an incredible woman. And it's also a testimony to her that her healing vocation has been passed on to her granddaughter. But tell me, how did a young girl growing up with her elderly grandmother in a village in Uganda, end up becoming a nurse scientist trained in San Francisco with a PhD at one of the leading nursing schools in the world. (laughs) 
You know, and there's, that's a good question. I always ask myself to follow that. I pinch myself because it's such an opportunity that not many young girls or boys, for that matter, get a chance to receive. And so I think we all have a destined journey to follow and a story that shapes who we are and who we are to become. I know I applied to a university in Oakland, California, and I had the opportunity of a sponsor who gave me the opportunity to come and learn in America. And so I would not have dreamt of the life I have today. And hopefully the work that I do, uh, the impact that it's it's going to make or it's already making. So I, I, I am blessed and I'm thankful. You've also decided to focus, I believe, on behavioral health. Uh, What led you to pursue that specific angle? I developed the interest, or at least the idea was planted in me during nursing school. But later, uh, more uh, specifically, at the beginning of my PhD journey, And as I often advise my students when starting in a major career journey or making an academic decision, I think it's so important to follow your passion in the meaning of uh, the work that you anticipate doing. And so for me, at the beginning of my PhD journey, I had to reflect on why I was taking this terminal degree of a PhD mm-hmm. and what exactly that I wanted to focus on that would hold meaning. And so you guessed it right. I wanted to find a way of contributing to the health and well-being of grandmothers, just like my judge. And so at the time when I reviewed the literature, it was apparently striking the impact of the HIV epidemic, HIV AIDS epidemic on the sub-Saharan setting. And at the time, and for the most part today, that focus was on who was dying. And that was usually individuals between 15 and 49 years of age. And of course, the focus was on who is taking care of the orphans. And then there was the mention of older women, particularly grandmothers who often were widowed, who cared for these orphans. But really, there was no literature that focused on understanding experiences, but also health research that focuses on grandmothers or grandparents as the primary uh, unit of analysis. So that perfectly aligned with my passion. I was also intrigued by uh, this incredible loss and suffering that the whole continent, really, but individuals were going through, especially in a setting that is already resource-strained. And I was curious about the physical, but most importantly, the mental aspect of that experience especially given the poor understanding of mental health in general in this region. And so in my foundational research, I sought to comprehensively try to understand what the experiences of these individuals were, but most importantly, and with an emphasis of looking at psychosocial well-being and how they interpreted some of the symptoms, for example, they may be experiencing from a cultural point of view. I think as a native of Uganda, I was keenly aware of some of the cultural nuances or stereotypes, stigma, or even the traditional interpretation of mental illness. And so I was very curious to elicit these responses, especially that allowed these grandmothers to give their meaning of what some of those symptoms they experienced were. An example, a grandmother interviewed, um, and I asked her about the symptoms, and she said, you know, I tend to have uh, peptic ulcer kind of symptoms. My stomach hurts a lot. And so when I dug deeper and I said, what do you think is causing that? And she thought about it and said, you know, I think it's related with thinking too much. Of course, uh, she was describing worrying. And I said, well, why, why is that the case? And she said, people get frail and eventually they die because these thoughts can kill you. And so without really imposing my own definition and suspicion of 
some of the symptoms and behavior that she was uh, having, such as closing herself up in her home and not wanting to talk to neighbors, going days without bathing or certain symptoms where she would cry a lot. And so I also said in some places, people with uh, certain symptoms like that do get treatment. And she <laughs> laughed and said, oh, people get uh, treatment for thinking too much. And I said, well, certain symptoms like that folks get treatment and help for. And she said, well, I don't know. And I said, well, if you say those can kill you, just like any disease like malaria would, wouldn't you think that this could be a disease? And she said, oh, I had never thought about that. That really, I think, gives us an indication uh, of how poorly understood, especially for many of these individuals who don't have any formal training or education or health knowledge um, was. And so that was the initial introduction and interest in behavioral health for me. I wanted to ask about your experiences in the United States, especially going through school and then entering the workforce as a black woman in a field that is dominated by white women. Was race and your background ever an issue? Oh, certainly. Going to predominantly white institutions automatically for underrepresented minority students, you don't see yourself anywhere. You don't feel a sense of belonging when you uh, interact with um, these kinds of environment. And uh, so if that is coupled with uh, other barriers that always often will uh, prevent you from accessing the resources you need, then certainly it can have far-reaching impact on so many, especially who may not have any additional resources to allow them to navigate these environments. And so it is a reality for many, especially some of us who are first generation college, but really uh, educated individuals in our family or highest educated individuals in our families. We don't have a point of reference. Uh, many of us, well, I speak for myself, didn't grow up with uh, individuals that we looked up to, at least from an, an academic point of view. And so when you are faced with an unwelcoming environment, that only exacerbates the anxiety surrounding that experience. For an immigrant like me, there's so many other complexities as well. Coming to the United States even before, just listening to, let's say, an American talk was a hardship because you had to pay more attention to listen to their accent that you didn't understand. And so you are navigating these um, seemingly minor but very impactful uh, challenges that often um, may not be experienced by others. I always say when I compare my experience as an immigrant to this country and that of my African-American colleagues, is that, yes, we are Black, and for sure we experience uh, barriers based on the color of our skin, but there are some other nuanced experiences, unfortunately, that we may have that are unique to who we are, the way you talk, and other experiences. And so those challenges existed, and they still do in some ways, especially as we advance in uh, these careers that we choose with time, you, if you're lucky, like I've been in terms of uh, getting resources for prog from programs such as uh, the Minority Fellowship Program, you are able to get that sense of belonging elsewhere that might not be existent in uh, the institutions that don't provide that. And how did you overcome all these challenges? And what tips would you have perhaps for a student who is a young immigrant student who's now beginning to confront 
all of these different challenges and issues mm. studying in, in the U.S.? That's a good question. Um, first and foremost, where I start always is embrace who you are. Own your story. Be proud of who you are. Embrace your background, good or bad, because that's what makes you unique from others. And don't change uh, for anyone uh, just to fit in. I know there's a lot of challenges with immigrants, mostly to try to assimilate in the new culture for the betterment of their families, especially second generation or whatever reasons. I think what makes us unique is what makes us excel in life. And secondly, not to give up. I mean, the challenges are going to be there nonetheless, but you find the right um, cheerleaders along the way. And they might not even look like you because sometimes, uh, you know, as uh, individuals of color, we hope that our mentors are always going to be our people. <laughs> and sometimes that's not the case. Yes. And sometimes you get the, the biggest disappointments that way, not all the time. But be open and seek the support and help you need uh, from mentors who have interests in common with you. If uh, mentorship relationships don't work out, they're not meant to work out. Find another and keep at it until you succeed in the goals um, that you've set out for yourself. Yes. I think it's absolutely important to remember that there are good and bad people uh, in all uh, racial and ethnic groups, and you can find people who can support you uh, in many pockets. But you soldiered on, and in 2022, you were awarded the Jane Norbeck Distinguished Service Award from the University of California in San Francisco. Tell me about that and what it meant to you. Oh, well, thank you for asking. It was an honor. You know, I think um, we have different motivations in life, um, hopefully to be of service to others, um, to put your dreams ahead and, and pursue those and not ignore them and uh, focus on others. But I think to me that award and others have been blessed to have just that extra pat on the back, just to acknowledge you and remind you that you're on the right track, that you're doing the right thing. I know there's a lot more that I have left to do and continue to do in the work that I, I love uh, with grandparents and nursing uh, profession in general, but it was certainly uh, a, a nice pat on the back and, and I was honored uh, to be awarded that uh, by the uh, UCSF Nursing Alumni Association. Uh, yeah, affirmation is always, always good, always welcome. Well, we'll take a short break now. And when we return, I would like to explore further the research interests that you began expounding on and how you are working to improve health outcomes for marginalized communities. You are listening to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up, brought to you by the SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association. The stigma about mental health or substance abuse issues is particularly prevalent in underrepresented racial and ethnic groups. One way to overcome that stigma is to recruit more nurses from all underrepresented communities into these fields so that they can focus on eliminating stigma about mental illness and substance use through their leadership in research, practice, education, and policy development. Receiving treatment from someone with a similar background builds trust that can lead to better outcomes. The SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association is actively engaged in identifying and supporting nursing students seeking graduate degrees in psychiatric mental health nursing. Visit emfb.org to learn more. Well, welcome back, Dr. Matovu. 
Now, diving in further into your research interests, could you share with me what they are and why they are so important, both in Uganda and East Africa and in the United States as well? As I continue to advance my program of research, I'm currently focusing on contributing to designing and testing interventions that are needed to address some of the challenges experienced by grandparent caregivers, particularly grandmothers who often carry on this labor of love. And uh, there are several challenges that they uh, experience, ranging from physical, social, mental, emotional, financial that they experience. I believe that if we don't address a certain unique social determinants of health that impact individuals and their families that often create these uh, specific and unique challenges, whether they are based on basic needs such as shelter or clean need for clean water and food, um, if we don't ad- ad- address those, then we cannot be able to develop uh, sustainable and evidence-based public health or clinical interventions, really. And so my current pilot is informed by uh, the stress process, and I'm looking at targeting social support as a mediator for some of the poor health outcomes and looking at, say, instrumental or uh, tangible uh, support, whether it's earnings from an income-generating activity, such as selling agricultural produce. For most of these older individuals who often don't have any source of income without any sources of uh, social support in the country, that they need to be able to sustain their households with the basic needs. Or emotional support, especially in an environmental setting where the social network is either weak or really small. And informational kind of support, for example, through health education, as can be provided by nurses, especially for many of these individuals who have no access or have barriers to care services. Question of uh, what is the, the similarity in experience, for example, And my response to that question is always that grandparent caregiving as a concept, I think it is a global phenomenon. Not to mistake it with grandparenting, that short-term interaction that's joyful with your grandchildren, you spoil them and you send them back home at the end of the weekend or babysitting uh, in a day and you return them. That's what grandparents often enjoy. But when you have to parent again, at a time when you are older and you're supposed to you know, be thriving and enjoying your retirement, now you're forced to come out of retirement and find a job or two, which sometimes might mean that you're going to lose some benefits. And now you have to provide full time, whether physical, financial, emotional care to your grandchildren for whatever reason. Some of these children have their own uh, challenges, physical, emotional, developmental, especially coming from very unstable families of the adult children. And so when you don't have any support, whether it's familial or community-based uh, uh, support, that really sucks the joy out of grandparenting, don't you think? It's been attributed to a lot of poor physical and mental health outcomes, such as depression, anxiety, and certainly the exacerbation of other pre-existing chronic conditions. Recently, actually, we just completed a, a systematic review of 50 studies in 11 countries about the perceived needs of grandparent caregivers. And so the, the, the challenges are the same. If it's an issue of affordable housing or adequate housing uh, for uh, grand families, as they are called, or lack of basic needs, again, such as food or medical uh, services, both for the grandchildren and the grandparents. And so the experiences or rather challenges are very similar. 
What about the solutions? Because the challenges are, again, physical, financial, emotional in nature, the solutions are similar as well. You know, again, the context might be different in terms of what's uh, available in a given uh, setting, such as the United States may be. And maybe the issues might be access uh, to those services that are available. That's why we continue to still advocate for resources to reach many vulnerable uh, groups of uh, grandparents, like in rural areas or marginalized communities. But again, especially thinking about the history and the context is also critical. In the U.S., when we think about the HIV AIDS epidemic in the 80s and more saliently, the crack epidemic uh, that led to this really social injustice of mass incarceration of that middle generation that then created the context in which our grandparents had to take on the uh, primary uh, responsibility of caring for their grandchildren. In, of course, sub-Saharan context and other areas, the HIV epidemic was key. But as we experience different crises at different times, for example, more recently, we have more white grandparent uh, caregivers as related to opioid epidemic. And so with the COVID-19 pandemic, again, we have some unique challenges, especially around stigmatization of these older adults and as more susceptible to COVID than the younger cohort and the, the isolation that may be related to that. Or for those grandparents who already were in charge of their grandchildren, lacking access to the services they had before because of lockdown and other restrictions. And so, again, the context, the crisis, and so on and so on may be different, but the needs uh, remain as perceived uh, by these individuals. So when I'm asked about the difference, uh, the difference really is in context, but the needs are really pretty similar. And what is the role of behavioral health professionals, and in particular nurses, in addressing the problems that these communities face? So my answer to that question is twofold. As we think about specific social determinants of health, chronic poverty, um, for example, which I believe really is the worst form of social injustice, they create, first of all, they impact certain populations worse than others, especially marginalized populations, and they create this perfect breeding ground for a myriad of mental health issues, physical as well, but particularly mental health, whether it's related to generational traumas of different kinds or substance abuse, uh, alcoholism, uh, domestic violence, of course, the devastating losses that are associated with some of these public health crises, chronic lack of mental health services and providers. So that's one aspect. Um, Secondly, we are living in an increasingly diverse global community because of several factors, but particularly because of our increasing uh, permeability of our borders, whether it's because of socioeconomic or political other reasons that then create vulnerability among certain groups that are um, disproportionately impacted. Just as an example, you know, in 2021, the U.S. received more than 50,000 Afghan refugees, which is novel. Uganda, which I was surprised, is Africa's largest refugee-hosting country with more than 1.4 million refugees from all over, Somalia, Ukraine, and so on and so forth. And it's a small country, which is about 36% of uh, the size of Texas with about 42 million people. And so uh, we're having these massive shifts in demographics and you know, associated tensions such as political that really create that uh, unique vulnerability to health inequities and barriers. And so to your question, it's imperative more than ever that we increase the number of behavioral health professionals, especially 
those who are representing these uh, disproportionately impacted and marginalized communities. And what is the cost of not doing that? I think we are going then to continue seeing the health disparities that we see, continue to see specific groups of individuals um, impacted over and over again. And we've experienced what some of the social factors, racism and related factors have uh, done for generations, for example, in minority communities and led to this transgenerational a stress that is associated to a lot of poor health outcomes that we notice. So we're just going uh, to have more of that. <laughs> it's very important that we cre- increase the number of uh, ethnically and other categories of, of diversity amongst behavioral health professionals, for sure. To put it perhaps in more simple terms, are, are you saying that the children that are being cared for by these grandparents who are facing these stresses and the negative impacts of, of poverty and other social determinants that impact negatively on their health. Are you saying that those children are more likely to experience negative health outcomes and challenges to their own growth and uh, end up becoming like their parents, their grandparents and suffering, you know, and not, not having uh, good productive lives? Absolutely. That's one way of looking at it. I mean, if, for example, I'll give you an example in Uganda, you know, especially with the lockdowns that were not, in my opinion, not um, well planned out, individuals were forced to be stuck at home um, without any kind of resources, uh, no food, uh, no, you know, basic needs. And so the children had to stay out of school without any resources or access to laptops, for example. And so children have dropped out of school, young girls have become pregnant. And and so that cycle repeats itself with those kind of inequities that we are already existing and now are worsened by a new circumstance. And the grandparents who are supporting some of these uh, children who are often uh, either orphaned or uh, for other reasons, adult children are not able to take care of them, are going to be in a worse situation than they are, you know, abusing drugs and the cycle or the domino effect of uh, bad outcomes continues. And so um, it is certainly important as we think about policies, as we think about the kind of research to support specific groups is concerned. You are the co-founder and co-director of Nurse to Nurse Global Initiative. Tell me more about that initiative, its goals and how it has or will make a positive impact. Oh, well, um, that's another um, passion and (laughs) labor of love for me and my colleague, Dr. Linda Gregory. And so just a little background, while still students at the UCSF, PhD program, we co-founded, first of all, we shared our experiences as nurses in the U.S., the triumphs, the the, the benefits and the rewards of being a nurse and, and the, the challenges we experienced. And um, I happened to share with her the experiences of my colleague nurses in East Africa who really have shared with me appalling stories of really caring for patients under the most extreme circumstances. For example, delivering a baby without water or gloves. I mean, I thought those are conditions that many nurses in the U.S. or other places cannot even imagine working under. And so that was really the beginning. How can we support each other? As nurses were experiencing similar challenges, a different extent nonetheless, but still, 
And there are organizations such as Sigma Theta Tau and other entities that engage communities of nursing internationally. But we wanted to look at a grassroots level of finding ways of supporting each other, finding ways of developing leadership and professional development for nurses everywhere because, again, we're all impacted, but particularly in areas where the, that are truly under-resourced. We have started small. <laughs> we always joke that um, our nonprofit is a young one, but with big dreams. And most of our efforts have been directed towards professional development, portfolio building, and so on um, amongst a few nurses. But we are looking forward to advancing that work and our mission and being able to train nurses and those critical skills that they need, such as leadership skills. For example, currently we got funding from the University of Utah College of Nursing to pilot a training as a partnership between University of Utah College of Nursing, Aga Khan School of Midwifery and Nursing in Uganda here. We hope to continue um, advancing our mission and making a difference in the lives of nurses. That sounds like a very worthwhile cause. You are listening to Season 2 of Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up, showcasing the inspiring journeys of emerging nurse scientists addressing the unmet substance use, psychiatric mental health challenges facing marginalized communities in America today. The SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association is a federally funded program granting fellowship awards to nurses of all underrepresented racial and ethnic groups who are pursuing either a master's or a doctoral degree in psychiatric mental health nursing. To learn more about this program and how to apply, visit emfp.org. Welcome back, Dr. Amatovu, and it is time for some lighter conversation now. I have a few questions for which I would like tweet size responses, if possible. So let me start by asking you to share one memory from your early days in the United States that, looking back now, make you chuckle. <laughs> well, well, there are quite many, and that's why I'm chuckling. But, um, you know, <laughs> it, it's just those uh, very interesting interactions and uh, a culture shock, I guess. For example, I remember adamantly having to remind people whenever they say, you have an accent. I said, no, you do have an accent too. I mean, the accent is how we all pronounce <laughs> words. And mm. I was always very intrigued by why people pointed that out. Not that I had a problem with it, but it surprised me because I didn't ask them about that because they, so it was, uh, <laughs> now that I look back, I'm like, you know, yeah, it was an interesting interaction. That's one of them. Okay. Name one preconception that you had about the United States that got shattered after arriving and living here. Coming to the U.S. at all is hard. America is the land of opportunity and everybody in America is rich and, <laughs> and everybody has everything that they want, the land of plenty. And certainly that's not the case, especially when you think of some of the disparities that we see. And so I remind my colleagues here in Uganda that that's not the reality, but folks still don't believe you until maybe they visit one day. But well, especially if they see you coming back and you are in a good position. And what is the funniest question that you've been asked by non-Africans about life in Africa? Oh my gosh, again, many. Uh, if I'm thinking <laughs> of the funny one, uh, you know, that's different from the annoying ones. But the funny ones, 
someone once said, asked to ask me and a couple of uh, friends and said, you know, so when you sit it in your living rooms, do you look outside and see lions in the yard? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you just have to laugh at the amount of ignorance. Have you seen the film uh, Coming to America? <laughs> Which one? The first <laughs> or the second? Because don't get or me both. started on the second. I enjoyed the first one. I've watched it several times. You know, it's just a fun movie, but certainly not the, uh, the ideal lifestyle. Not everybody coming out of Africa is a king or prince. Uh, <laughs> But I think, you know, in a more serious note, I think it's good to put those images out there to remind people that, you know, Africa may be impoverished in many ways, but certainly there's a lot of beauty in so many places that we get to enjoy. But unfortunately for individuals who are in chronic born, um, grow up and die in poverty, may not even appreciate as much or may not have the resources to uh, appreciate them. And so it's beautiful in so many ways and flawed in others, especially when you think about governments and policies and who are supposed to take care of its people. So uh, yeah, there's no, there's no perfect place on this planet, especially in these days. So if you could name one film or TV show that you would recommend people watch to gain a better perspective about Africa. Oh, that's that's a hard one in this. I don't know. I, to to hmm. be honest, I don't think I've watched too many uh, shows that uh, nothing that comes like, to mind right away. So 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 we have uh, we have a lot of work to do as yes, uh, people of sure. African descent to tell our own stories. What did you think of the Black Panther? Oh, I loved it. Again, I loved it. So there's a movie I would recommend. <laughs> I, I loved the link between the African culture, the African people, and the Africans in the diaspora. I think we do not hear enough of that story. Sometimes it leads to a lot of misunderstandings, for example, between individuals who presumably share this beautiful ancestry, and yet the world has divided us so much that at times we fail to see the similarities in ourselves. We, we, we fail to see us in each other. You are driven by the stereotypes of, for example, what Africans think about African-Americans. So that movie, for once, I think, I felt that it told that story of unity or the story of identity of the African people and their unique journey uh, over the centuries and how we could possibly unite. And so I hope more of those stories are told. Well, I think uh, when we're speaking about unique stories, yours is definitely one. So which actor would you choose to play you in the movie version about your life? <laughs> well, I, you know, now there's a question I've never asked. Uh, I've never been asked because I think... <laughs> The safest answer I can give you is that my life is not that exciting uh, to be played in a movie. <laughs> and that's the, that's my answer and I'll stick to it. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to, and I will not, I will not push you further on that, but I can maybe offline, I can think of one or two uh, movie stars that might, um, that, that might fit the bill. But I do disagree with you. I mean, the story of a young girl coming from a village from Entebbe, living with her grandmother. I mean, just that chapter itself would make a brilliant, a brilliant opening. And then, you know, you have your your journey across the African continent and the Atlantic, and all of what that must have entailed. Landing in San Francisco and with all the acculturation stuff you must have gone through. Your schooling, and then 
getting awarded, getting your doctorate, and then you know you have your ending as you're coming back uh, a champion. I think mm-hmm. that is <laughs> that is a great narrative. Well, I, I you know I appreciate uh, your, your 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 observation and, and confidence <laughs> there. And yes, maybe there will be a story there. I don't know which um, actress. I mean, I've been likened to Halle Berry, but you know. there it is okay but you know this is this that's the second time that she's been mentioned by our guests so um i think there's something going on there (laughs) (laughs) and moving on who would you have as your guests if you were to host your dream dinner party Mm, now, that's a question I've thought about, in fact, dreamt about, believe it or not. Really? Okay. <laughs> believe it or not. And so, that mm-hmm. is easy. I think, first of all, it will be an all-everything white um, clothing and everything. Now, first of all, dead or alive, I mean, not dead at the dinner, but, you know, those alive and those who are no longer with us, right? We, uh, absolutely, we can make the guests. <laughs> absolutely, guest list can be from the past. Absolutely, sure. if you could bring them back, yes, mm-hmm. sure. And so, um, my judge, my grandma, of course, will be at the end uh, of that table. My father, of course, I think is the wisest and most resilient man that I know and love, would be at the end of that table. Um, Doctor Myangelo, uh, Oprah Winfrey. Justice RBG, Justice Ginsburg herself will be Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the first president of an African country of uh, Liberia, would definitely be there. And the best friend in my head, uh, Michelle Obama, uh, first lady for sure, will be in attendance. Only one man. Only one man, just uh, because I think uh, the voice of uh, strong black women needs to be elevated even that much more. I'm putting you on the spot there. I come from a yeah. family of very strong, <laughs> strong women. So I appreciate uh, I appreciate having and amplifying the, the voices of strong uh, women. But we must remember, they have to also talk to the men. So I'm hoping that you oh, know, as, you sure. ex- as you expand your table, we will consider more men. And what would you serve them? What would be on the menu? Um, uh, certainly, I have to emphasize, yes, there will be more men uh, for sure because we don't need uh, those advocates. Um, but uh, mm-hmm. for the menu, so first of all, it will be catered uh, because, okay. uh, <laughs> yes, I, <laughs> I can cook. <laughs> Uh, if I had to, um, okay. but but cooking is uh, certainly a talent that I reserve for others who enjoy it, and I can sit back and indulge in and appreciate the delicious creations that they have. Um, and it will certainly be some African food for sure. Okay, and what is your favorite African dish? And again, oh Africa gosh. is huge, so yes. the 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 culinary. Um, the 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 culinary offerings are also vast, but yes, what is your favorite dish from the continent? Well, let's just say Ugandan favorite uh, uh, okay. dish for me will be um, uh, ground uh, uh, ground nuts, um, okay. like a peanut sauce that mm-hmm. is um, you know prepared with mashed potato. I mean mashed uh, matoke, which is mm-hmm. plantains. Um, mm-hmm. With some uh, purple, purple vegetables and some African eggplants uh, with that. I'm now okay. hungry. Yeah, hear me too. My mouth is watering. <laughs> I'm going to have to make my way to the nearest uh, restaurant later on to get some get some of that. Um, I think we've got quite a few 
in the vicinity. So thank you for that. And then my final question in this section, and this is a reflection of a, a mad fever that's been going around the past few days, the lottery, the jackpot reached over $1 billion yesterday. Now, what would you do if you won that much money? Oh, wow. Uh, isn't that the dream, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, definitely um, I would put them behind the causes uh, that are close to my heart. You know, programming to support grandparents who need those resources and certainly uh, supporting programs for nurses to advance their own well-being and pro- development. Very honorable, Dr. Matofu. Thank you very much for that. And we will be right back. You are listening to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up, brought to you by the SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association. Listen to all of our episodes at emfp.org, the SAMHSA MFP at ANA's YouTube channel, or on your preferred podcast app. For more information about the MFP or to provide your feedback, email us at mfp at ana.org. Look for us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Then click subscribe, like, or follow us. Turning now to your experience with the SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association. Could you tell me, how did you first hear about the MFP? I was truly, truly uh, lucky to be introduced to the MFP family by its alarm and uh, uh, my mentor and friend, uh, Dr. Robert Pope, who then introduced me to the incredible Janet Jackson and the rest of the amazing MFP family of colleagues and mentors. And what role has it played in your trajectory as a nurse scientist? Well, first of all, I get an opportunity to speak with you today and to your audience <laughs> as well. So that's an honor. But for someone like me from uh, a background like mine, a nurse of color who has been educated in predominantly white institutions and uh, who has been mentored by really some incredible white women who are nurse leaders, the MFP was exactly what I needed in terms of providing me with that sense of belonging and that intellectual family and really, truly valuable support and resources that I desperately needed to establish a strong academic foundation for myself. And so for that, I am forever indebted. And whenever (laughs) Janet Jackson says, scholar jump, I say, well, tell me how high. (laughs) Uh, Wonderful. (laughs) That's a great affirmation to Janet Jackson's leadership. She is an incredible uh, leader for the program. Um, But you mentioned that something that's, you know, I think very important, the sense of belonging and Uh, It sounds like despite having wonderful mentors and uh, people that you could learn with and learn from, it did have a certain qualitative difference that made a strong impact on you. Now you're also uh, teaching. How have you used or leveraged that awareness that the MFP provided for the benefit of students of color that you might have been teaching? 
The MFP provided me with that foundation to be able to achieve my dream of becoming a nursing educator and leader and researcher. And with that, I am in a position where I can be able to support nursing students from all walks of life who may have intersecting social identities of all kinds that may predispose them to a number of factors that impede them from achieving their goals. And so I'm very supportive of all and especially those who have been marginalized or who have, have, have more challenges than others, but certainly for nurses of color. Again, like I said, often they are placed, uh, positioned in these settings where they are the only one, or you're a woman um, and you're the only one, or whatever it is. To be able to provide them the support they need, the reassurance that they are enough, in spite of whatever it is that they are challenged by, is is important to me. And again, the research is there that supports underrepresented minorities in predominantly white institutions have unique challenges. Those challenges are not only unique to them, but also to faculty of color, for example, in these institutions. And so, um, but even outside of, of you know academia, other areas as well. And so I make it a point, even when it, I walk into these environments and I see a person of color in the custodial services or anywhere to acknowledge them, to stop and say, hey, how are you doing? Because so many times we don't see ourselves and we are not acknowledged. The least I can do is to nod at such an individual and say, I see you because I see you in me and you're not alone and that you got this. And so that is very critical if we are going to be able to embrace the diversity that is our, our global community today. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. Completely agree with you, acknowledging and uh, making sure that we see each other is just so, so important. And then finally, Dr. Matovu, looking back at your life, where it all started, your journey, where you are now, um, what are some of your reflections and your thoughts and then your plans and your goals for the future? Hmm. That question um, often uh, gets me a little emotional. I reflect in gratitude, gratitude for a life and health that I've been given by a higher power that I happen to call God. I am grateful for my humble beginnings, for my father, who is my biggest cheerleader. I'm grateful for my grandmother, who is no longer with us, but whose spirit guides me every day. And I think to live my best and truest, authentic self. I am grateful for all the incredible mentors and the, the support I've received over the years, most of whom, like I said, from very strong nurse women leaders such as Dr. Frida Outlaw, who have believed in me and who have nurtured my intellectual development. As I move forward, Dr. Martin Luther King said it best, that life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? And so as I continue on this journey of self-discovery, I aim to lift others as I climb. And, and I'm guided by my core values of empowerment, empowering myself and empowering others, core value of advocacy for those whose voices may not be as audible, and service of many who uh, they may need that extra help um, and support. Wow. Those are extremely profound and deep thoughts with which to conclude this episode. Dr. Matobu, thank you very much for this wonderful conversation. It's been a pleasure. 
Thank you so much for having me. I truly, truly appreciate this opportunity. And that does it for this episode of Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion and I look forward to you joining us on future episodes. This is the Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association podcast, featuring nurse scientists addressing the psychiatric and mental health issues affecting underrepresented communities across America. You can always find us online at emfp.org and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The views expressed by the speakers and hosts do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government.